0: Welcome to another edition of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm your host, Rob Hunt, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Southern California, also known as the Promised Land. If they're working on the T-Bone State, call a card to over to the Golden State. When the pilot told us in 13 minutes, we'd be headed in the terminal game. Swing, low, switch, high, come down easy, touch it to the terminal zone. Your engine to coup your wings and let her make it to the telephone. Los Angeles, give me an old phone for Gan wanna watch it online. No balls back goes in the promised land. So lots to go over today. Unfortunately, my co-host Larry Michigan has decided that uh, Sedona, Arizona, and the Grand Canyon are a greater pull for him than uh than doing the show today, but We miss Larry, and hopefully he's having a terrific vacation with his family. Uh, I do have the good fortune of being joined today by our producer, Dan Humiston. So Dan will be jumping in here to discuss a little bit of Grateful Dead and certainly some cannabis topics, of which he knows a great deal about. So how are you doing today, Dan?
1: I'm great. I'm great. I miss Larry. We just got a phone call from him from the Grand Canyon, said for some reason he doesn't have any internet down there. So I think it's a lame excuse, but we're thinking of you, Larry.
0: Uh, I, I think that... If I were sitting in Sedona right now and I've been in cold Chicago all winter, uh, I probably wouldn't be doing the show today either. so you know Larry, have a great time, enjoy the desert, um, have fun out there. So it's you and me today winging it instead. no fearless leader in uh, Larry Michigan. But uh, but I think we have a lot of stuff that we can cover today. first of all, we're, we're looking at uh, June 12th from 1980, which is Portland, Oregon. Uh, a really really fun show as part of the uh, the Grateful Deads kind of Northwestern run uh, it's right around the time of their their 50 excuse me 15th anniversary so they did the Folsom Field shows in Boulder and then uh, came out and did a little bit of Northwest the Portland Oregon shows and the um, and the Seattle Washington so this one's a lot of fun I'll get into some of the reasons why this one's a special show a little bit later Lots to cover in the cannabis world as well so maybe we'll dive right in there because there's a there's a lot of exciting stuff in I'll start off with one that, you know, you and I touched a little bit uh, on earlier, Dan, which is some interesting news coming out of Delaware, something that we really haven't seen, um, you know, in the trajectory of legalization of cannabis at all. And that's that, you know, we're watching a democratically elected or a, a Democrat um, governor veto a bill that the House put forward um, for cannabis legalization. But more importantly, after the veto, uh, didn't get the override with a very, you know, strong left side of the aisle, um, state house that could have easily overridden the, the veto and didn't. And, uh, it's the first time we've seen this happen. What, what are your thoughts on it?
1: I haven't read the bill. And so that, but, but, you know, off the top of my head, I'm just like, this doesn't make any sense because all the polls point to, this is an accepted position. And so I can't imagine, especially a democratic or Democrat would think well this is going to help my position or help my my future in the in the office i i can't imagine that that's his thinking so unless there's something in this bill that just doesn't make any sense or is unfair i can't understand why he would do this i mean i i just can't fathom that somebody as much as they know right now would be against this for outdated beliefs but
0: yeah you know and the interesting thing is i don't think it is uh- as a result of being a poor bill, I mean, the bill sailed through, uh, sailed through committee and then sailed through the House initially, you know, getting 26 votes. And then when the veto happened, it came back and they had the chance to override it and only got 20 votes. And so it wasn't a question of the House, you know, disliking the bill. But what I will say is that, you know, Governor John Carney of Delaware has been very vocal about his opposition to, to cannabis legalization in general. Certainly is no friend of, uh, of the cannabis plant. So it wasn't a question of this coming out of left field that, you know, we thought they, um, that, that he'd be supportive. I mean, he certainly made it clear previously that if a bill came to his desk, he wasn't you know, inclined to support it. So that part of it, you know, we, we were expecting the veto. You know, the veto didn't bother me. But, uh, but then when it goes back you know, to the House to say, OK, well, what do you guys want to do here? Um, it was a 20 to 20 vote with one, one member abstaining. Uh, had it been a 26th of, you know, vote, then it would have had the, uh, the votes it needed to, to get across the, um, get across the line. So that's where it's a little bit, a little bit odd to me. And again, we're not talking about, you know, in a, in a pretty heavy red state, we're talking as, you know, as you mentioned earlier, this is, you know, Joe Biden land. This is, you know, in between Jersey and Delaware, or excuse me, Jersey and Maryland, two bastions of, um, of progressive cannabis policy. So to see it happen in Delaware, I mean, look, okay. Maybe you've got a little bit of like, you know, sort of the old, um, you know, uh, you know, DuPont, a regime that's been running that state for a long time and, you know, a little bit of like, you know, more conservative Dems than you do in most states, you know, uh, coming out of Wilmington. But, you know, this isn't, um, this isn't what you expected, especially in, you know, kind of the trajectory when everything else, if like the entire country is moving more progressive on canvas policy to see, uh, to see this state in particular um, slow down.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. It doesn't, It feels like we're missing something. It really does, unless, like you said, he is just this is this is the the hill he wants to die on. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. If he is saying I'm gonna, I'm I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm not budging on this. I don't understand it, and all the data doesn't support his position. And it's it just seems like he he's really stuck in the past. But
0: yeah. Which, you know, we do see in other places, and that kind of is a good segue to, you know, one of the next things I wanted to cover today, which is, I don't know if you read Alyssa Finley's um, or Alicia Finley's Wall Street Journal opinion that came out the other day, trying to make this connection between violent crime and cannabis, which has now been pushed by, you know, Laura Ingram's been on uh, her show and <clears throat> talking about it as well and trying to say, like, okay, with these, you know, mass shootings that are happening and some of the other violent uh, crime that we're seeing in inner cities and in, in other places that, you know how come people aren't taking a greater look at the uh, the correlation between the uptick in cannabis use and psychosis and violent crime that's happening, with literally zero to back up these claims. And this is it, it again. Let me point out: this is not the Wall Street Journal. You know, coming out with the editorial side doing this. This is an opinion in the Wall Street Journal. But the fact that the Wall Street Journal you know decided to publish this one and where, where she was um, you know sort of going to was. Data that Alex Berenson was providing. And I don't know if you're familiar with Alex Berenson, but this is a guy that fell absolutely flat in his face with uh, with data about you know what was going to happen with vaccinations. So he was a former you know New York Times journalist, but Berenson's been you know previously <clears throat> relatively sympathetic to the cannabis industry. Um, certainly has a big following, but you know to put this out there and, and then you know use it as fodder for all sorts of, uh, of right wing pundits right now. To say you know, look look at this devil weed and all the violence that it's creating uh you know that i expected out of out of some, some uh, certain people but i was very surprised to see that the wall street journal was brazen enough to put that um you know in its print edition
1: yeah i my brother's a, a police officer and we've had this discussion before he says dan we never ever have any problems with people who are smoking cannabis all of our problems were with alcohol people that cannabis are, are not aggressive. They're not, they're not, they're, that's, so I just, I, I, I mean, I guess. But I think that's
0: a different question though, isn't it? I mean, that that's the question of like, you know, are, are people inclined to get in, you know, fights like, you know, the way bar fights happen. I, I think this is more a question of, you know, psychosis that's caused by like prolonged use over time of whether or not that affects your, your brain and affects your, your capacity to, uh, to make rational decisions. This isn't, you know, like, Hey, I got drunk one night and something stupid. This is, you know, I used for a long time and as a result, you know, it's changed my ability to um, my cognitive ability to, to deal with life. So uh, but again, you know, the only time you've ever seen that kind of propaganda is usually coming out of um, groups that, that stand to make a profit from, from taking that position, which is normally, you know, the, um, the incarceration lobby, or it's the, uh, the people that make money on, um, on rehabilitation. So it's, it's rare to see it, you know, like, look, we, we've got how many millions of, of users right now in how many states that are legal, that are openly purchasing We're you know, $40 billion a year industry. Um, and this is just, you know, recent legal industry prior to that, we've got 50 years of anecdotal evidence of a massive amount of users of cannabis that psychosis and violent tendencies uh, over prolonged use were to manifest themselves in any meaningful way that would have already been demonstrated I mean, there's no question that, you know, like if that was the case, we wouldn't be seeing the legalization movement that we're seeing today because people say, wait a second, this has been asked and answered and there's a proclivity to violence and a proclivity to, to other sorts of mental illness that we've already identified even prior to legalization. So that's why I find it just really, really interesting that, that, you know, this reefer madness is now like coming back, like really now? <laughs> like after, after all we've achieved, after all, you know, as far as we've gotten, you know, I can't think of a single time to take you know, your, your um, experience with law enforcement and your family aside. This is a, this is a much bigger question as to you know, long term detrimental effect.
1: Well, you make a good point and that, that we, had, we don't have the data to support this. They don't have the data to support this, which doesn't always stop somebody from, <laughs> from putting something out there. Maybe just as clickbait, maybe just to be a contrarian, maybe just to just to get attention to their site. I it's 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 hard to tell what motivated somebody to do something like this, but it just seems like it's a non starter.
0: Yeah. I, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, Kevin sabet has been doing this for years, right? You know, he's been out there with smart approaches to marijuana and trying to sell people on the fact that oh no, no, it's not that I'm against cannabis, it's just that we really need to think about how we're gonna do these integrations and you know, like we have to consider a hundred things you're not considering right now. Ultimately, you know, if you listen to his message, it's I'm very anti-cannabis. I'm just trying to pretend that I'm not. But what's it for? It's because he's making a, a great deal of money on on you know the lobby that he's uh, developed, and a great deal of money on selling materials and being interviewed and being a speaker at, at events. So you know, if there's a, um, a a way to be a pundit of some sort where you know you're receiving monetary gain for doing it there's a lot of people that are willing to say almost anything you want them to say or anything they think is going to sell books or sell, you know, sell airtime.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But hopefully this one doesn't gain any traction and we're, and it's just, we, we look back on this as just say one, it was one failed attempt to slow down the the movement.
0: Exactly. And uh, to all you out there in the audience know that, you know, this is certainly not anything that I ever say um, to try to gain audience. Because if I have, it certainly hasn't been working. Thank, thank you to a <laughs> couple thousand of you out there that are, that are listening to us consistently. But uh, but you know, no one's no one's paying me to put forward my positions <laughs> on uh, on how I feel about uh, progressive cannabis policy. Yeah. So hey, um, you know, getting back to the music for a minute. You know, the show that I chose. Uh, yeah, I know you're not a huge Grateful Dead fan. You can certainly can't nerd out the way Larry and I can uh, on some of this stuff. But I don't know if you remember, but. May 18th, 1980, was the day that Mount St. Helens initially erupted, uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon, with you know pretty cataclysmic effect. And most people remember that May 18th eruption. They don't realize there's multiple other eruptions that happened subsequently over the next couple of months. Uh, so it was you know eruption after eruption after eruption. There were three of them that were that were pretty uh, pretty massive. You know, not nearly as big as the first. But um, you know, if you were living in the Northwest at that time, you were largely covered in ash for for quite a, a few months there and it was coming down like rain all over the pacific northwest so you know an interesting time to to be there it was you know sort of for me one of the catalysts as a young young kid i think i was eight years old when it happened of like thinking earthquakes and volcanoes were so cool you know with uh, the 1989 earthquake in san francisco being the other major catalyst that got me into like wanting to be a geoengineer in, in college until i realized there was math involved <laughs> As I say, us attorneys are the smartest guys that aren't scientists or mathematicians. We're, we're the ones that, that that fall back on a fallback position of, of, you know, well, this is a hell of a lot easier than that. But uh, but St. Helens, you know, was was a big deal and was a really big deal then. And um, there's, you know, some legendary stories about, you know, the Grateful Dead's performance that day in Portland because it, it coincided with the third eruption on June 12th, 1980. Uh, there was another, you know, massive eruption that happened and the entire uh, venue you know when people were leaving their cars were coated in in ash and the highways were coated in ash and as people were trying to make it from the venue from portland up to seattle for the next shows uh a lot of them had massive engine problems that were their cars were shutting down because the intake wasn't working so there's cars stranded all over the highway and fortunately the band made it and band, band got to the next venue but uh but it made for you know kind of a legendary thing there's there's very few times being I mean, like you you talk about like sort of the the random things that happen that coincide with the grateful dead performance. And whether it's, you know, like just weird stuff that you heard happening in Giza when they played in Egypt in 78 or, you know, um, uh, giant stadium in 19, uh, I want to say 89 when they played, um, the music never stopped and the line balls of balls of lightning roll along and a lightning bolt hit the stadium at that moment. You know, there's, there's definitely like sort of these magical moments where people look back and be like, Whoa, but to, um, to have an eruption happen roughly at the uh, the same time as you're starting the second set with a, with the scarlet fire and having a fire on the mountain where the mountain's literally on fire right up the street from you. And the eruption was enough that it was so cataclysmic that, you know, it caused an earthquake simultaneously and everyone felt this thing is one of those times that, you know, people look back and be like, wow, there's some cosmic grateful dead stuff going on on this night. So, uh, so I figured it'd be a good one to, to feature, but let's, um, Let's listen to a little bit of the Cassidy because the the end of the first set was was pretty, pretty hot as well. the uh, the end of the cassidy from that show you know one of the things about 1980 is is it really doesn't get a tremendous amount of fanfare you know a lot of people talk about 77 obviously 78 and 79 still had you know uh, a lot of big shows 79 was you know when brent joined the band 78 is when keith you know was just leaving the band but 1980 you know it, it should be considered to be a, a much bigger year And as i said there's the, the 15th anniversary shows that people talk about from folsom field and they played um, up in Anchorage, Alaska, which is another one that's you know pretty well loved, uh, pretty well loved show. But it, it just doesn't get the same attention from the fan base, and I've never really understood why. And when you listen to that cast, you think, "Wow, these guys are playing as well as they've ever played." So it's um, for me kind of strange that it's a, a largely forgotten year. But lots more to talk about on that show. But in the meantime, we've covered some bad. Cannabis news. Let, let's talk about some good things that are happening because there's definitely some positive news out there, and one of them that you and I uh, covered earlier, Dan, was what's happening in DC right now. You know, we got a great bill that passed yesterday that bans employers from firing workers for using cannabis.
1: Yeah, hopefully this is the first of of many bills that passed to give employers, some guidelines, some guidance and some, some protection because it's scary. I can see from an employer standpoint, we talked about this, particularly if I have contract government, government contracts, federal government contracts that I don't want to put in jeopardy, you know, it puts me in a really tough spot. This gives you a little bit of some flex, some flexibility, some, some guidelines as to what you, what you can and can't do and protects you in case maybe are called to, called on the mat and said hey wait a minute this employee and we we could can cancel your government contract and you can say no there's a bill we're, we're we we are, we're we're protected by this bill so i really am feel encouraged by this and i just hope other states and other municipalities will follow suit this is this is a really good sign it's a great
0: sign but it also you know raises all sorts of new questions and the, the primary question is can you um, have a policy in DC that is in direct opposition to the policy of a multi-state corporation? You know the, the hypothetical I'd give here is that let's say you're a, a company that transacts business in all 50 states and you've got employees in you know sort of satellite offices in all 50 states. And if you have a policy that says, hey we drug test all employees and if our employees um, you know pass a drug test for cannabis that our blanket policy across the business, is that we terminate them, and by the way, our insurance policy requires that we terminate these employees. Now, is there uh, an issue where they say we're going to fire fire the employee, and the employee goes, "Well, wait a second, I'm in DC. You can't do that. I've got protections here." Now, the question is, you know, from a legal standpoint, who actually wins that battle? And uh, and something that you know I've been looking at as a question for no kidding over over ten years now. I think it's about fifteen years since this first came up, and I'll give just a quick little bit of history on this that. Uh, In 2009, I want to say I was in a uh, continuing legal education class in Colorado that was uh, conducted by an insurance company. And he was discussing like drug testing policies and was talking about the new legalization of cannabis in Colorado. And, you know, the fact that he is an advisor to uh, to quite a few companies and said, look, you know, if if someone tests positive for cannabis, uh, I let the employer know that you've got to terminate them. And a lot of this in the class that, you know, it's like 50-50 Canvas supporters and non. And the Canvas supporters are like, well, wait a second. This is legal in Colorado. You can't do that to an employee if they're a medical cannabis patient. And this is before adult use. You know, if you're a medical cannabis patient, you can't terminate someone for that. And he came back and said, look, you know, we, we have blanket policies for a lot of these insurance um, programs. He said, you know, I, I tell the employer that, you know, very likely you might have to settle a, a wrongful termination suit. And, and then he brought up a hypothetical. And I, I think I've talked about this in the show before. Of a woman that he was that he recommended be terminated, who suffered from MS, who was wheelchair bound, and uh, and still recommended the termination of this employee, and you know knowing that the optics of it were terrible. Like here's a woman that really truly derived benefit from use of canvas, but the the idea behind his recommendation was, well, if she gets away with using a medical necessity excuse, then how many other people are going to be able to do the same, and it destroys the entire policy that the company has set in place. So he said better to settle with you know better to terminate her and then settle a wrongful termination suit with her. Um, in an arbitration agreement than it is to actually uh, to, to allow it to go through and say, okay, we're going to make an exception because now you've opened the door. And so long story on this is we, we got pretty far into it. And I said, you know I, you know, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. And I don't think you can do that. So what happens that, what if that same employee tested positive for Oxycontin? And this is before the whole opioid crisis had really kicked off. And he said, well, Oxycontin is legal. And I said, sure, if you've got a prescription, but what if someone's, you know, buying Oxycontin on the street? He's like, oh, we couldn't know that because of HIPAA violations. You know, like, we can't ask what they're, they're... and I said, okay, well, you're, you're right about that, but HIPAA should protect whether or not, you know, a cannabis patient, if they test positive for cannabis, they should be able to say, I've got a recommendation for this, and you shouldn't have to be able to verify it any more than you should for OxyContin. He said, no, 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 because of the federal illegality, we don't we don't take that stance. And he said, second of all, like, no one's abusing OxyContin, and half the class just goes, oh, come on, like, you know, you're not paying attention. You know, what we're seeing coming out of D.C. right now, from uh, from the standpoint of, you know, how it's going to work? I think it's going to require quite a few other places to to follow suit and say, "Hey, we we believe in what DC has done. We've got to provide these same protections." Because if not, and they're just an outlier, I don't know whether or not it's strong enough to uh, to provide the protections that that they think they're providing from just from a legal standpoint.
1: Yeah, you make a lot of good points. I think it's really more of a. I mean, if if you're just located in the district then it works, that th- it'd work fine for you. But if you're a company and say like Lockheed Martin, like what are they going to do? Like they're not going to just carve out, I, I, I don't know for sure, but it seems as though they probably would take the same stance that your professor took and they're not going to carve out the district. They're going to just deal with those one-offs it, w- as they come up. But I think in a big picture, it's it's identifying this issue and sending acknowledging that there's a concern and that it needs to be addressed and so hopefully this is the first step in a multi-step process that starts to make that starts to move other states other municipalities towards the same position and i don't know that's going to matter until the whole country's there but and like you said if your insurance policy i mean i don't want to lose my insurance policy like i don't want to jeopardize that so there's a yeah, there's a lot more variables in this then meet the meets the eye
0: yeah for sure and uh, look the, the single thing I'd say to most employers is stop complaining about not being able to find employees if you drug test you know if, if you're testing for cannabis in today's uh, day and age and, and you don't have like heavy machinery or you don't have you know uh, specialized um, work that requires someone to you know be hundred percent on it at the moment, you know, look, look, I'm not advocating that anyone use cannabis before they go to any job, uh, but cannabis stays in your system much longer. It's fat soluble. It's almost impossible to detect when you're using it and you know, like you can do an anagram test, but you're not going to test for whether or not there's inebriation at the time of the test or whether or not it was from, you know, the day before or four days before or a week before. So for that reason, you know, there's a lot of companies that are having a lot of trouble finding qualified um, uh, applicants because their drug testing policy, especially around cannabis. So, you know, if, if you're a company that, you know, you're not asking people to, uh, you know, to, to perform uh, very technical things that require uh, absolute sobriety. I mean, if you're just like a rank and file, you know, employer, stop testing for weed. It's, it's relatively simple. If you want good applicants and if you don't, then, then don't be surprised when you know, your applicant pool is you know, one third of what it would be otherwise. Because like, there's a lot of people in the age 21 to like 30 age group that have no intention of ever working for a company that tests them for cannabis. Like they'd like, why would they do it? And I know that, you know, your daughters in this industry of doing recruiting, I'm guessing that, you know, there isn't a person that's, you know, that she's recruiting that, that would um, uh, be willing to work for a company that's going to drug test them for cannabis.
1: <laughs> Especially if they're looking for a job in cannabis. <laughs> and,
0: did, and do you remember like 10 years ago, there was companies in the cannabis industry that were like, Oh yeah, we're still, you know, we're looking at getting insurance policy that have drug testing. Everyone's like, you can't deal with like, hypocrisy. Of course you can't do that. I know. And so, you know, there's a, a pretty vocal opposition to it back then of saying like, if you're going to be a cannabis company, you can't drug test for cannabis. It's like, don't do it. But you know, now that's a, a lot more widespread and I think there's a lot of people that are realizing that there's, they've got to make new decisions around what their policy is for uh, for drug testing in general.
1: Yeah. I just think it's a good, it's, I think we're moving again, this road that we're on seems like for people that are in the industry seems like it's a taking forever it's like we're in a traffic jam and we're just slowly moving along but if you look at it if you take a step back and you see how far we've come uh, we're making progress and this is one more arrow in the quiver we're going to get we're getting one step closer with this that's a good sign i'm not excited about the delaware governor i er, i think that's a bad sign but overall i think that's going to be a you know, a small, a small setback is, I mean, this is a one set, one step forward, the what's going on in, in DC.
0: Yeah. And then look, I think we're seeing all sorts of little incremental steps all over the place. So it's um, you know, if Delaware is the one outlier right now of kind of a step backwards, uh, usually it's like 20 or 30 steps forward before you see a step backward like that. And uh, I think we're going to see more and more States or even within a state, become increasingly progressive whether it's you know, announcing the, uh, the addition of new licenses or whether it's expanding the program to new applicants or whether it's um, you know realizing greater tax production you know based on cannabis, you know that's a lot of the news that we're seeing these days just you know how much money is coming in um, for cannabis taxes and how much money is coming in uh, just to the industry in general and how many people they're employing so uh, the more mature the industry gets the more accepted it gets. The, the better off we are and the less we expect to hear from people like, um, you know, Alicia uh, Finley over at the Wall Street Journal.
1: Yeah. So. And if it's got to be, a, and if we have to have a state that's going to say no, might as well be one of the smallest states in our country. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. And to, no disrespect <laughs> to Delaware, but honestly no one really cares what you guys do. Uh, yeah. you know, we care what New York does. We care what California does. We care what Florida does. We care what Texas does. You know, those are, those are states that move our needle um, politically. But even those states, you know, we're seeing we're seeing a lot of movement, even internally with those states. I mean, New York, we're, we're looking closer and closer to uh, to, you know, full blown legalization and actually selling into the adult use market. And so I'm excited. I think this summer is going to be a, a watershed uh, summer in general. And one other positive piece of news I think that we can touch on quickly is, you know, we, we always kind of phrase this in partisan terms as far as who we expect to lead the charge. And you know, we certainly have seen some uh, Republicans in the past. Especially in the House that have um, that have been very vocal as advocates you know, for cannabis reform, but it's rare that you see it in the Senate. You know, you see like the libertarian side of the Senate. You know, the Ted Cruz's, the Rand Pauls, the Marco Rubios, who have been supportive of cannabis policy, but but not usually like overtly supportive of saying, "Hey, I am really going to you know push in a, an agenda." But we saw it this week. We saw Steve Daines out of um, out of Montana, the senator from Montana, um, actually put an ad out that said, "You know, let's let's get safe banking passed." And, um, you know, again, Montana is not a state that moves the needle politically, but it is um, a very conservative state in general. You know, it's got some pockets like, you know, Whitefish and, and Missoula that are that are pretty, um, pretty progressive. But the entire eastern side of the state might as well be the Dakotas. And, uh, you know, for him to come out and uh, and you know, push this policy of, of saying you know, safe needs to pass. I was really excited to see that.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, in my opinion is you don't even have to be pro cannabis to support this bill because this is just pro-safety. Like you don't want cash, you don't want a cash economy. No one, it's dangerous for everybody. It's dangerous for customers, it's dangerous for employees, it's dangerous for people just walking by. So whether you're a pro-cannabis or anti-cannabis, you should not be against this bill. And I think that's, I don't know why more people in Congress don't feel that way because this is really a pro safety bill like you just cash is just creates an environment that's just not safe for anybody and why do we want it why do we why are we taking a step back we're trying to get away from a, a cash economy we're trying to get away from people carrying big wads of cash it really baffles my mind sometimes so when somebody whether they're really far right leaning or really far left leaning comes out against it, I just scratch my head.
0: Yeah, I do too. I mean, it's a, a simple adage that we've known for years. And I think um, to paraphrase one of the great bank robbers of all time, Willie Sutton, you know, why do people rob banks? That's where the money is, you know? so it's Where the money is. Um, yeah. Same thing is true of, of canvas dispensaries. You know, the second you, you force people to pay in cash is the second you're making them a soft target. And as a result, you're making everyone else in that facility or around that facility a soft target. So in an age right now where, you know, gun safety or just safety in general and how to, you know, harden different places, like, you know, you don't have to harden a dispensary. You just have to make it safe so that the people who are into that dispensary don't have to worry. You know, you don't necessarily need armed guards at a dispensary. Uh, the only reason you need one is if you're actually, you know, enticing someone else to try to come in and rob you. And that's, you know, that's muted completely by uh, digital transactions. So, um, so I applaud Steve Daines.
1: I think and the other thing that's always puzzled me or I always felt was overplayed was I just don't feel like criminals are going to be as motivated to go in and rob a dispensary just to rob their cannabis. I mean, that's a, that would be a hard a hard thing to pull off. Like they're only going there to get the cash, not the cannabis. Of course. Like get your
0: I mean, it's one of the great misnomers, right? For a long time, it's like, oh, well, there's all these drugs in there, and they're going for the drugs. <laughs> what, are you guys joking me? Like, how much weed are you going to steal? You're like, they've got a year supply worth of vapes. Like, come on, that's. It, it, I mean, maybe you could say, okay, they're doing it to like put it out and resell it. But again, that says to me, like, you know, there, there's got to be safe ways to uh, to do this, and a lot of the things that the industry itself have been pushing, which is, you know, hey, let's have a way to to track and trace, you know, everything, barcode everything, or find other ways to to. You know, make sure that if someone actually has a product and they're trying to divert it, you can identify the diverted product. But it to your point, it's not about the weed. It's about the money. It's it's very, <laughs> very simple. Guys don't go in there going like give me all your weed.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and like so you and you and you your pool of criminals is so much smaller because not only if I'm just going in there to rob your weed, now I gotta sell it. Like but if I can go in there and take your cash, like that, just opens it up to everybody. Like every criminal could could take could do that. But only so many, only a smaller portion of the criminals can take your weed and sell it. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is dumb. It's just dumb. The the cash is the problem.
0: They yeah, don't even know if there is like a fence for uh for for like aftermarket stolen cannabis. You know, like hey, I got my guy. Let's go. Let's go to Kansas City. <laughs> you know,
1: yeah, it doesn't make it, it doesn't it makes no sense. It'd be like. I'm not going to go in the liquor store to steal all your liquor. <laughs> like, like I'm, Oh, give me all, give me all your, how much you got in the till? I got
0: 10,000 <laughs> bucks. All right. I'll take the scotch.
1: <laughs> yeah. Give me all your Seagrams and crown. I don't want anything else. Yeah. Like nobody does that.
0: That's uh, definitely not happening, but, but yeah, I mean, it only makes sense for everyone. I mean, we've talked about safe banking a, a bunch in the past, but I think it's becoming a much more of a safety issue. And it's not just about banking regulations, but it is about the fact that people are realizing right now that one of the things that safe solves is, um, you know, taking thousands and thousands of dispensaries across the country and, and making them significantly safer to the general public uh, as a result of, of taking cash out of the transaction, or at least largely taking cash out of the transaction. It's not to so say you can't pay by, by cash, but, you know, if given the opportunity. I, I can't think of the last time I've carried cash. Like, you know, I, I have it for, like, odds and ends. But other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm in the digital world completely.
1: And it's, it's employees, it's customers, and it's the people just near the area. I mean, why do you want to put those people in jeopardy? Why would we do that? It's, it doesn't make any sense. So we need to. Hopefully, this is an, another step in the right direction of the Montana senator coming out on this on realizing it's just it's just bad policy not not to
0: fix this this one issue.
1: You don't have to be for pro or you don't have to be pro cannabis. Just make it safe for everybody.
0: Agreed. Agreed. So, getting back to June twelfth, nineteen eighty, it's been a choppy episode. Say we sort of t- toggle back and forth. There's no uh, no clean segues uh, the way there were last week when we were able to you know use song quotes to jump between songs. But uh, you know today it's much more you know thematic as we're, we're kind of going back and forth the topics. But uh, I love early June. Early June, if you know you're a college student, was when you know college had just ended. Uh, if you're a music fan, that meant the tour was starting no matter what band you wanted to see, whether it was, you know, Panic or Fish or the Grateful Dead or whoever else. You know, if you're going to go to music festivals, you know, Bonnaroo is usually the first week in June. A lot of the other bigger ones were the you know, first week of June is, you know, you're kicking off the, the music season. I was like right now, like, some of the bands I just mentioned are in full swing with their tours right now. Music is back. Everyone's outdoors. Everyone's, you know, barefoot, uh, you know, wearing shorts, t-shirts. It's just a great time of year. And, you know, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm spoiled. Southern California is like this all the time, but even down, even down here, it's been, you know, I'm out playing tennis in the evenings and doing stuff and, you know, finding outdoor activities to, to do. There's more barbecues, more, you know, eating outside. So it's the best time of year. Right. And for the Grateful Dead, that was always, you know, like June was definitely a peak of like kicking off their, uh, their, their, summer tour. But this year in particular, you know, as I said, May 18th, 1980, St. Helens blows its top. They'd obviously long ago, you know, announced the show. So it wasn't they just, you know, pick it up and cancel, say, okay, we're not going to play Portland. At that point, I don't think people were expecting that they were going to continue to have eruptions, but, but it did happen. And some of the, some of the, the quotes, you know, some of the descriptions of this night, um, I think are worth, you know, reading through because it, it's pretty cool. So, uh, um, if you look at the, uh, the grateful dead of the day, uh, website they featured this show as their their dead show of the day and uh, their quote on it was eruptions occurred occasionally in the months afterwards including on june 12th on that day a plume of ash billowed 2.5 miles above the volcano at 7.05 p.m about the time the dead first went on at 9.09 p.m smack in the middle of the fire of the mountain a much stronger explosion followed sending 10 miles of ash straight up the entire city of portland was coated by the plume including the lot of the coliseum so think about this for a second dan You're at a show, the dead kick into fire on the mountain, and boom, like a you know, a mountain that you can see in the distance erupts and sends ash ten miles into the air. And you're high out of your mind watching the show, (laughs) going, Holy shit, what just happened? Yeah.
1: Did that happen?
0: That, Did that really happen?
1: That's like I'm saying, yeah. you're sitting there going, "Wow, really?" And so, especially that I can't help but be a skeptic, but it's happened so many times. Or at least you've told me stories so many times where the song is playing when this happens like that is just there's just it's just such a coincidence such a great coincidence that that
0: happens it's a coincidence when it happens once you know it's a it's a miracle it happens twice but when you know for the dead it seemed to happen with with somewhat you know frequency right you know it wasn't you could always count on it but you know more weird stuff happened than not uh, but this one is, this one is one for the books that, you know, nine Oh nine PM right in the middle of fire in the mountain. When this thing happens, it's uh it, it's crazy. And one of the things that, you know, uh, I loved is Bill Walton's description afterwards. And so let me read a, a quick, quick uh, bit of this, which was posted on JamBase And it was an interview with Bill and said, we were on tour of the grateful dead in Oregon. They were playing the show and they start playing fire in the mountain, the volcano next door, Mount St. Helens blows up. When the show was over, a bunch of us raced to the airport and boarded a plane. We told the people at the airport we were scientists studying atmospheric conditions and the effect of smoke and volcanic explosions on the human spirit. So the pilot was terrified, but we convinced him to fly right into the smoking crater with lava and fire everywhere. He wanted to go home, but we were still on a scientific mission. We kept getting closer and closer. As we were flying around the inside of the erupting volcano, the military jets scrambled from the local base and camped there to get us out. It was a real dogfight, but we had the, the spirit of Cortez on our side, and eventually left, and we landed at the airport, and the pilot was most relieved as we quickly fled and went back to the rest of the tour. That is... <laughs> I mean, only Walton, right?
1: That's, I mean, I, I got to give him a lot of credit, because that's scary stuff. I mean, it's cool afterwards, but at the time, I would be nervous going right over the... <laughs>
0: unless he was it's not scary it's batshit crazy i mean if what he's saying is true and there's a plume of smoke that's up in the air i mean as i said like cars are breaking down the highway because they couldn't get from portland to seattle i can't imagine taking a small plane and flying it over the uh, the caldera at you know a couple hours later when the thing is still smoking there's still lava down below if what he's saying is right and not you know some sort of you know uh um memory that's been embellished over time that's one of the most absurd things I've ever heard in my life that Walton did.
1: Especially since what you said earlier is that it it blew once, and then at nine oh three or nine oh, it blew again. So there's no telling. There's there's no way to know if it's going to blow again when you're flying a plane over it.
0: Okay, so I look at this a different way. You know, I, I kind of think back to Robin Williams in the World According to Garp. When, you know, the plane flies into the building, he looks at the real stage and he's like, I'll take it. And his wife looks at him, um, you know, are you joking? He's like, look, the chances of that happening again are astronomical, right? <laughs> and so I look at it that way or I look at, you know, like, uh, I remember, you know, being in Europe one time and uh, I was about to drop into a line and the cornice right above the line dropped and, and just avalanche the entire face. And I looked at my buddy and I was like, all right, let's go. And we dropped in right after. And everyone's like, no, 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 avalanche. We're like, the avalanche already went, you know, like. You know what, what? are we worried about? The whole whole face slid. You know,
1: there's not going to happen. There's twice, no other yeah. instability
0: in the snowpack. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, there, there's times like if if you watch the big one go, you're probably going, all right. Well, you know, that's exploded again. We're probably okay to go in there. But even still, it's uh, not necessarily the safest thing to do.
1: I don't even know if I want to be in that state, let alone over top of the like the, the volcano. I mean, but, have you ever
0: been on a smoking call there? Have you ever like looked into like where the, uh, like the lava and stuff is actually like in front of you?
1: Yeah. In so, Hawaii. Um, yeah. But, but and, and not, I mean, it was, I was behind a fence and yeah. it was, you know, every.
0: And, and that's not Hawaii. They, those aren't like cataclysmic explosions either. Those aren't like shield volcanoes where like the whole top blows. Those are, you know, just magma sort of steadily pouring out. Uh, so a, a bit safer. I've, I've done it down in Guatemala where, you know, they're a bit more volatile. You know, there's big cone volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, it's it's a little nerve wracking to look down there and go like, whoa, that's that's happening right in front of me.
1: So. <laughs> yeah, I'd say. <laughs> I'd say. Wow. Wow. That's, well, so we was, it was right in the middle of, of Fire in the Mountain. Yeah.
0: So the story goes.
1: Should we, should we play a little Fire in the Mountain?
0: Let's do it. Let's hear it from that night. Down right at the end after the, you know, the jam, after the third verse. But I got to think, if you're the band and you're on stage and Mount St. Helens blows its top while you're playing Fire, <laughs> it's probably got to make you play a little bit differently that night and just thinking to yourselves, like, there's no way that just happened. That's
1: crazy. I'll tell you, I'm going to take a sidebar here because I actually know exactly what I was doing probably at nine o. Was it
0: 9.03? 9.09, I think, is when the... uh
1: Yeah, I probably... I probably know. Ex- I think I know exactly what I was doing at nine oh nine. It was my seventeenth birthday, and I was praying to the porcelain god uh, with uh, with uh, <laughs> my my buddies. Got uh, it was uh, Southern Comfort is what put me over, put me through, and uh, never, never, ever have been able to drink Southern Comfort since then. But I remember clearly where I was when when. <laughs> I mean, it might not have been twelve oh nine. East Coast time. It may not have been 1209. It may have been 109, but at some point, I was in bad shape.
0: An eruption of your own. I was
1: having, a, <laughs> I was having an eruption of my own. Yeah, I, I know that for sure.
0: I, I made it one year longer with Southern Comfort than you did, and I haven't touched it since I was 18. So I, I know that feeling. And It wasn't even that night. It's the next day when your whole pores are dripping Southern Comfort, and you're like, that's it. I can't even look at a bottle without getting sick.
1: I can't, I can't smell it. <laughs> can't smell it if somebody brings it oh god it's so bad i'm like i can't even smell that but that 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 was i was scarred on that night june 12th 1980 17th birthday so
0: that's too funny anyhow well so hey uh before we go um you know we've got some some good guests that we know are are coming on the show soon we don't have dates um set for them but over the next couple weeks we're gonna have some really fun um good guests coming to join us Larry should be back from the Grand Canyon. So excited to hear from him on, on how his trip down to the bottom of the canyon was. Uh, hopefully he's dealing with the Vortex is OK in Sedona and all the rest of that, uh, you know, interesting hippie stuff that's happening out there. Um, we started the show today with little Chuck Berry with Promised Land. And you know, I can tell people that my first show uh, in California, they played a Promised Land. It's my first time flying to a show. So, you know, I, I definitely identified with the final verse of, you know, cut your engines and cool your wings and let me make it to the telephone of letting people know that i would made it safe to California to see, uh, to see some dead shows. And I think that was Oakland of December 1990, the New Year's run, where I started off hitchhiking across the Utah desert and no one would pick us up. And I made it as far as the Salt Lake City airport and said, OK, that's good enough for me. And I went over and bought a ticket and went instead. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was, you know, I think I made it 18 miles from, from my dorm to, <laughs> to when I gave up about eight hours later. But, um, you know, it's rare you get two Chuck Berry tunes in the same night. So Portland, Portland did it. Uh, Portland, June 12th, 1980. They, they finished it off with the Johnny Be Good after opening up with a uh, promised land or second song, promised land. So as we head out this evening, um, just want to say, you know, thank you, Dan, for joining us and being a, a surrogate host to me today. We'll have Larry back next week. But until then. I'm gonna send you off a little Johnny Be Good, and in the famous words of uh, my co-host and uh, sage and leader of the show, enjoy your canvas responsibly.